Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson. Joining me in a bit will be Candace Lepage, and she joins us this week to review a new documentary. Well, relatively new. Uh, it is documentary season. The Guelph Film Festival is still on. Actually, it just begun, and it will be on for the next month or so. So, uh... It's a good time to talk documentaries, a good time to see documentaries, a uh, good time to be in the theater. It, uh, the fall chill has arrived, although it's been warmer than average the last few days. But, uh, well, let's watch some documentaries and talk about some documentaries, shall we? Anyway, <laughs> End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be the new music documentary, Summer of Soul, which you can now stream on Disney+. Plus. That will be in the back half of the show. For the first half, we will have one more interview uh, from a Guelph... Uh, I almost said Guelph International Film Festival. They thought they dropped the international a couple years ago. But it was so much fun when it was GIF. It was GIF. It was the Guelph International Film Festival. Moving right along. Um, (laughs) One more interview from the Guelph Film Festival. Uh, We've done, I want to say, five, four or five. Probably closer to four. I'm not going to add it all up right here on the air right now but i think it's four this will be five it is with julia morgan who is actually a cfru alum and you will hear about that she directed a short film called undeniably young nor young and the six-day race it is about this uh really incredible female athlete from the 1930s named nora young and this short is 15 minutes long but it's an incredible 15 minutes um you do not have to be a sports fan to get it um or appreciate the sort of the athleticism of, of Nora Young, who sadly is no longer with us. But it is uh, a really funky, funny, entertaining short film about, um, I mean, sports, uh, you know, requires a certain recklessness, especially if you're playing a game that requires you to wear a helmet like football or hockey. Uh, well, baseball also requires you to wear a helmet when you're at the bat. But, I mean... For sheer lunacy, the six-day race was, like, somewhere between American gladiators and, uh, I don't know, like a <laughs> something out of jackass. Anyway, uh, we'll get into that with uh, Julia Morgan with our interview about her film, Undeniably Young, starting right now. So, Julia Morgan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. Uh, to get this out of the way, uh, it, it's interesting to note how um, you can run into people who have a CFRU connection in all walks of life, and you have one. So would you mind <laughs> expanding on that for the audience, how, uh, how you are intimately familiar with the workings of CFRU from personal experience? Sure. Yeah. So um, I used to volunteer for CFRU back in the 90s when I was going to the University of Guelph um, for two years, I think. And I had a a Tuesday morning show Um, for the first year. It was uh, something I co-hosted with my friend Cecilia Fernandez. Um, And then the second year I did it um, myself and sometimes she did it herself. 
because uh, our schedules were different, I think. And it was uh, what they called then a world music show. I'm doing air quotes here for um, <laughs> listening, but, uh, you know, we don't, uh, we, I think we realize now that all music is world music, but anyway, it was sort of exploring music from around the world. Um, yeah, and I had to get up very early for that show. Um, I think it was quite early, and then the time slot switched to seven to nine. Um, so yeah, that was kind of fun on winter mornings, but uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that experience. Good. Well, welcome back. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your movie, um, Undeniably Young, which is, I, I think, sort of has a double meaning. Um, when you kind of see the pictures of, of Nora Young as um, a senior woman still out on her bike. Um, how did you come across um, Nora Young and, and her story? And, and why did you want to turn that into a, a short documentary? Okay, well, I'll, I'll try and give you the shorter version. So um, Nora was my neighbor and um, I moved into the neighborhood in Toronto where I live now, which is um, in the, the Danforth area in 2005, February. And so I met her once, just once. Um, she was throwing a big garage sale because she was moving out of the neighborhood. And it was a Saturday morning. And I ended up meeting this um, woman in her 80s having this big uh, garage sale. And there were two, two or three things of note. Um, one was she was just extremely... Um, vivacious and kind of lively and fun. Uh, two, she had some medals sort of nailed up uh, on the wall in um, picture like a 1970s bungalow with, you know, that sort of fake wood paneling. Um, so she had some medals and she said, oh yeah, I used to be in sports. <laughs> and um, third, she was giving out gin and tonics to, to people who came to the um, garage sale. This was at about 11 in the morning on a Saturday. So, uh, so I was so intrigued. And then, um, but the other thing about this, this little chapter that, that, uh, you know, got me quite interested was something called the golden age of women's sports in Canada. And I kind of knew that around, uh, World War II, it was sort of like a career golden age for women. I mean, suddenly there were all these new uh, career opportunities. Most people know that. But I didn't know there was this sort of um, time between World War I and World War II where there was this, you know, first golden age of women's sports. All of a sudden, there were all these new freedoms for women with uh, voting rights and um, urbanization, many women moving to cities, having jobs for the first time, some, some financial independence, living um, alone or with uh, other women. Um, so all kinds of freedoms and women started organizing themselves in sports. And it was really the first time on a mass level um, they were playing sports. And it was a huge, huge, huge hit. Uh, often uh, women's events were better attended than professional men's <laughs> events because it was just such a phenomenon. And it was a bit of mixture of like really true appreciation and fandom 
but also a little bit of like, you know, looking at something in a zoo, like, oh, isn't it interesting? These women can make these sports, can do these sports or whatever. And so there was all this stuff mixed in along with, you know, discrimination and barriers and things. Um, And I just couldn't believe I'd never heard about this uh, period in history. So um, then when I had a chance to make a documentary about someone, Nora jumped into my mind right away. And about the the particular sporting event that the film focuses on, um, I can't imagine this is something that would exist now. This event, and, and to, to describe it for people who haven't seen the film or perhaps to entice them, it's this event in Maple Leaf Gardens where there's a circular ramp track where where there's actual elevations in the track it's on a slant and you ride around and around and around for essentially 24 hours a day six days a week and the only reason it wasn't seven days a week is because you couldn't do sports on sunday um but you're, you're riding this track um for the women they didn't have like women like bikes built for women uh like we have now like if you're a professional bike racer as, as a woman you have a, a woman's bike that didn't exist. You had to borrow a man's bike. Uh, safety was these helmets that were made of leather and didn't look particularly safe. But, you know, you're running around on this slanted track for hours. Um, the wipeouts in some of that footage that like some of the footage that you did have looked horrible. Um, I mean, this this seems like one of those things you hear about like people do on boats and you know international waters where there's no law <laughs> it, it just seems remarkable that anyone did this sort of activity <laughs> you're right in um so the phenomenon is called six day racing and uh it was absolutely wild and kooky and so perfect for a film setting <laughs> um <laughs> it starts something like the 1890s Um, and actually it still goes on today in Europe believe it or not but the format has changed uh, many times over the years I would hope so yeah the heyday was really in the 30s that's when my film takes place in 1936 and so what happened in these races as you said um, uh, teams of men from all over the world would compete for 24 hours a day for six days straight. And they had this rule. um, So there were teams of two and one member of the team had to be on the track riding at all times. And so the other guy could be taking a break. Um, So they had these little shacks literally in the middle of the uh, race course where they would sleep for a few hours or eat something or whatever. And it was this, um, really big deal. These were the biggest live events of their time. So they'd regularly have, you know, 15,000 people, which was quite a lot for Toronto back then. Um, And they'd have politicians and film stars and gamblers and ordinary working class people. And everybody just went to see these things, Um, especially at night when it got very exciting. They had a lot of um, sprints and gambling, as I said before. Um, And then at night, when nobody was there, the racers would sort of uh, decide amongst themselves to just uh, ride slower. (laughs) So (laughs) that's when you see some great photos of them um, 
reading the newspaper while they're riding or reading their fan mail or something. Um, so yeah, that, so this, this particular race was very unusual because they decided to throw in kind of a women's demonstration race. Um, you know, my guess is to sell more tickets. It was a real draw, like, oh, let's see the girls try this. <laughs> and I mean, you're right, it was really dangerous. There were, there were deaths at these races. There were serious injuries. Um, there was also big money to be made sometimes, which is what made it all so exciting, I guess. Um, but the women were taking a real risk because unlike the men who, you know, were considered professionals and they'd had years of experience um, riding on these banked velodrome tracks, these pine tracks that, as you said, were kind of um, quite steep on the two ends. Um, they had no experience doing this at all. And there were very few professional women's bikes made then. They were very hard to get your, your hands on and they were really expensive. So most of the women had to just borrow um, another male rider's bike, which was you know, most often too big for them. Um, and these bikes on this um, track had no brakes. So they're getting used to no brakes and their, their feet being clipped into the pedals. And um, uh, yeah, and the helmets were made of leather for everybody back then. So, um, so throwing in these women with this improper equipment when they have no experience was, was quite risky for them, but they were all very serious competitors. And I don't think any of them gave it a second thought that they wanted to try it. I think, I think the, the fans and the race management were more worried about it than the women um, were because there were, I didn't cover this in the film, but there were a few times where they actually stopped the women from racing because they were worried that, you know, somebody was, was really going to hurt themselves uh, and that would not look so good. <laughs> right. Uh, no breaks was the other thing I forgot. Yeah. Um, there didn't, you know, can you talk a bit about the decision about doing a lot of this in animation? Um, is that like a stylistic choice on your part or is it just that, you know, there's not a lot of surviving footage and imagery from either this race or similar races? I would say it's, it's both. Um, so <laughs> all I had from this race. Okay. So first of all, back up a second, all that, there's really very little that history has about this race. So if you walk into um, Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto today, you'll see a plaque of the most important sporting events that have happened there through history. And so there's like 1931, you know, Maple Leaf Gardens opens, a couple other things. And then 1936, six-day race, um, an important women's race happens, something like that, period. Mm, That's mm -hmm. all you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I had one photo that I got from Nora herself, which showed uh, herself and two other women in kind of the final women's race lined up uh, on, the, uh, on the starting line. Um, and then... You know, I had Nora telling the story to me at the time she told told the story to me. I didn't know that I was going to focus on that story. Um, 
And then when I did decided to focus on the story, I went back and I looked at the daily newspaper accounts in um, the versions of the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail and a couple other uh, papers, Montreal Gazette, um, because this race was so significant back then that it was covered nationally daily for like weeks. And even even a a month or two later, they were still giving follow-ups and updates. Mm. Um, So I could sort of piece together a lot from those written accounts. And as a bonus, I could get a lot of really fun language and a sense for how they, uh, you know, different people might have spoken back then, which helped me in writing a script and creating characters, the the sort of semi-fictional characters that I did create who are kind of based on some real people sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I did wonder if like those clips of like the reporter commentary, um, if that was actually like you were quoting uh, an actual article uh, of an actual writer at the time. I mean, it, if it wasn't like the dialogue was kind of spot on the way like they talked about women as girls and <laughs> but it, it, I found I, I was I was kind of curious about that. Yeah, I, I may have borrowed and remixed some things here and there. And uh, yeah, definitely um, used all the juicy fun language I could like um, uh, there's lots of stuff around the six day race language. Like they, they call it the old speed saucer and the, the squirrely world and, you know, things like that. So <laughs> It was really fun and trying to imagine what those voices would sound like and what would a race announcer sound like? What would he say? You know, what would a, a male journalist sound like? And I based based it on a, a real, real journalist from that time. Female journalist, how would it sound different? Uh, what, what would she say differently about the same thing? Um, yeah. So, yeah, I did. Uh, I did. I did borrow remix and, and in doing so, I think uh, try to stay as authentic as I could to how things uh, might've sounded. Mm -hmm. And the narrator of the film is a voice people might recognize, although they might recognize it better in song as, as (laughs) as she is at the end. Um, How did Sarah Sleen become a part of the movie? (laughs) Well, um, quite amazingly, she lives in my neighborhood. So she (laughs) all, lives in Nora Young's neighborhood, although she moved in, uh, I think, after Nora would have moved out. But I was running a crowdfunding campaign for this film a couple of years ago. And I knew that people in my neighborhood would be sort of a primary audience to raise money from. So I literally hand delivered letters to um, all 1100 households in my neighborhood. My friend and I went door to door over a couple of days. And one Saturday night after a round of delivering, I came back home and uh, found an email from Sarah. And she said, oh, I just got this to my door. I love stories like this. How amazing she was in our neighborhood. Glad you're you're doing this about her. Do you need a composer? And I quickly wrote back, do I? Yes, you know. Um, But then a while later, I started hearing her voice as the narrator. I just love her voice on her CBC radio um, um, shows or um, drop-in appearances. 
And so I just approached her about being the narrator. And um, yeah, she'd never narrated a film before or done voice work, but uh, she was game. So um, yeah, that's how that was born. And I'm happy with how it sounds. Well, we did spend sort of several minutes today talking about Nora Young. So uh, Mm -hmm. her her spirit lives on. And uh, Julia Morgan, thank you so much for uh, telling her story and for telling us about it today. Thanks so much, Adam and CFRU represent. Woo! So once again, that was Julia Morgan, and she's the director of Undeniably Young, Nor Young and the Six Day Race, which I believe is part of the week three program of the Guelph Film Festival. And if you don't want to take my word from that, and I don't blame you, it, you can check all that information at guelphfilmfestival.ca. And... Uh, you can buy your tickets and passes and check out all the other films that we've uh, talked to the directors about in the last few weeks. Check out all the other films available. It's a great slate this year. Um, there's something for everyone. Uh, will Summer of Soul be for you? Well, if you like music, it should definitely be. But we're going to talk about all that coming up next. You're listening to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus, and Community Radio. You gonna rile up singing You gonna hide your wings oh, Take to the sky Nothing will hold you with dead in mammy. They'll be standing by. I was a little kid. I remember being with my family, walking around the park. And as far as I could see, it was just black people. This was the first time I'd ever seen so many of us. It was incredible. Families, fathers, mothers, kids running around. I was one of those kids. Beautiful, beautiful women, beautiful men. It was like seeing royalty and that was a clip from summer of soul it is the new film from quest love and it features performances from stevie wonder mahalia jackson nina simone the fifth dimension sly and the family stone and gladys knight and the pips i am now being joined on the line by candace lapage candace how are you today I'm doing pretty good. Um, it's it's beautiful and sunny in my office right now, though I'm mm. not sure what it's going to be like, um, you know, by the time this airs. So it's supposed oh. to be beautiful and sunny all week. Perfect. Actually. Perfect. So yeah. So it's a nice, it's a nice refreshing change, and uh, uh, it'll be a nice refreshing change. Like when I get packages delivered and uh, they don't get soaked, as has happened to me recently. Um, yeah, we really did have like two solid weeks of, of rain didn't we i'm just mentioning because i have like an actual mailbox it's like a, not like i'm ordering like 
huge things they could fit comfortably in the mailbox but they end up on the stoop um this is just a like if you happen to be a delivery driver and are listening to this you know and you're del- i mean not just my house but anywhere um <laughs> you know if there's a big enough mailbox for the thing you can put it in the mailbox that's that's not a problem i'm just saying it's, it's an idea yeah exactly yeah uh, speaking of revolutionary social <laughs> ideas, uh, you wanted to review the documentary Summer of Soul for this week's show. So uh, why don't you kick things off by talking about um, why you wanted to review Summer of Soul? Sure, sure. Um, so there are there are two reasons. One reason, and of course, since it's it's sunny, very sunny, um, <laughs> it maybe you know isn't as relevant. But you know what what else do you want? after the time has changed in a cold November in Ontario, but to go back to the summer, to July and August and the hot sun and, and um, you know, just revisit, revisit what it was like back then. So that was one, mm-hmm. one sort of thing going on. I think this is an appropriate time to watch Summer of Love. The other uh, Summer of Love, <laughs> summer also, of that, was, that was two years pr- prior to Summer of Soul. Sorry, yes, the Summer of Love was in 67. That's summer right. of Soul was the uh, 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival. So I, um, I also chose this one because I have been uh, doing an anti-racism course. And part of the course is that we were given a challenge to do 21 days of um, Black, Indigenous, or uh, people of color created content. So um, I'm, I'm in the middle of that right now. So when my turn came up to, to do a film, I said, okay, I'm going to choose, going to choose something that's, that's from a, you know, a non-white creator. And um, sometimes here, I don't know if anyone's noticed, but sometimes it's a little hard to find those. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, sadly, I did spend a lot of time on Netflix and, and um, Prime video and just sort of scrolling and scrolling scrolling like wow wow this is disappointing um i also think maybe my algorithms might have been a little skewed by all the hallmark movies so i was just getting a lot of really white content showing up on my pages but um summer of soul came out this this summer uh Mm. so it's still a pretty new release and um Mm -hmm. you know i don't do I don't really do documentaries, so this is this the second one in probably about two months. So, mm-hmm. am I uh, am I taking over? Is it Tim who usually <laughs> does all the documentaries? Uh, I think Peter's more of a documentary Peter, guy. Yeah. He's like he's done like Jasper Mall and Britney versus Spears this year, so it's it's been a very documentary centric year. Um, but yeah, it's it is still hard. Um, to and yeah your algorithms are definitely out of whack because uh uh nothing says white christmas like those hallmark movies um (laughs) (laughs) though i will say this year that hallmark is making a very strong effort um the first three i think films that i have watched um had uh the first one i think was uh two lead actors who are people of color the second one was um, an interracial relationship, and the third one was also two uh, black people. So, yeah, mm-hmm. of course, they're all at the front end, as you may notice. You know, <laughs> prior to Halloween, even they were mm-hmm. showing those ones. So, what does that say? I don't know. Uh, 
I don't know. I'm not sure how much it's that. Like there were Christmas commercials like a week before Halloween. <laughs> so it's just it, everyone was trying to get Halloween out of the way this year, at least um, for people whose business models depend on Christmas. Uh, so Summer of Soul, getting back to that. Yes. Uh, I mean, if we're kind of building a theme of like unknown, underrepresented, um, culturally relevant or should be culturally relevant. I mean, Summer of Soul seems to be that. This is a documentary. And I was reading a bit about it, but apparently 40 hours of footage that was in somebody's basement for five decades mm-hmm. <laughs> of um, of this uh, Harlem Cultural Festival, you know, killer lineup of talent like Stevie Wonder, Fifth Dimension, Marvis Stapleton, uh, you know, Gladys Knight and the Pips. You know, you would think there would be a, they would release a commemorate box set every five years of something like this. But um, no, it was in some guy's basement until um, Questlove came along, I guess. And yeah, it, it just, if you're thinking about, you know, the whiteness of culture and, and trying to create more equality and, you know, trying to raise certain things up. I mean, this is kind of that story. This is like, you know, as, mm-hmm around roughly the same time Woodstock was happening. Uh, this was happening too. Um, not only is this like perhaps debatably a better musical lineup, um, perhaps uh, debatably more culturally relevant, um, not in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York, but you know, in the middle of um, such a, a culturally vibrant area like Harlem. Um, you know, if you were to just like take everything on the merits and say, which one of these events is probably more relevant uh in terms of culture i think the harlem cultural festival if not beats woodstock puts up a good fight but i mean it's it's all the more glaring that you know this major cultural milestone was unknown even to somebody like quest love who's really got his finger on the pulse of you know black music black culture um that you know something like this was unknown to even him Mm-hmm. Uh, that he that he felt compelled to make a whole documentary out of it is I mean that's really saying something of itself. Yeah, and and even um, because the the film itself is both the concert footage, but also um, uh, interview footage with some of the artists who were there, mm-hmm. some of the the members of the audience, and I, I'd say sort of across the board, all of the artists and attendant like at- attendees who were there who are telling stories about it, you know, the, the one guy, and I can't remember his name, but he's the very first one who's interviewed. Um, and he's sort of the last one who's interviewed. Mm-hmm. And he says like, now I know I wasn't, I wasn't crazy. It's yeah. like, <laughs> it's like none of them really remember. There's no document of this having happened. And so it's sort of like this hazy, like, did it really happen? Was I really there? Am I misremembering things? Mm-hmm. And now to see the footage, they're like, oh my God, it did really happen. And to me, you know, that that's why it's so important to to teach history and to document it and to share these stories, because without stories like this, it's hard to to know yourself in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even this guy, Tony Lawrence, who kind of organized it, um, who's kind of like a, a sessions, you know, singer um, hired by New York City to kind of create cultural programming, uh, like not a lot 
is known about him. Like, even if he's still alive, like I didn't, you know, go to the library and take out the microfiche or anything, but it just, you know, from a, just a cursory bit of Googling, it, it seems like, you know, he's one of those Wikipedia pages where there's a line about how he organized the, the Harlem cultural festival. And, you know, whether he's alive or not, nobody knows what happened to him after nobody knows what happened before. Barely nobody, or barely anything is known. It, it just, it's um it's another one of these sad stories that and it's a marked absence of him in the film right when you look at the people Questlove interviewed mm-hmm. like this guy who was probably like 6 at the time as just as a as a audience member mm-hmm. gets interviewed but the actual person who put it all together mm-hmm. who who did all the work with the city and with the mayor, which by the way, like the city was, was behind this, which mm. is kind of incredible to think, mm. um, especially in a time when race riots were so prevalent that, mm. that the city said, yes, you can have an event that's going to bring a hundred thousand black people together in one space. Mm-hmm. Like, and the white Republican mayor was there too. Yeah. That guy, <laughs> I did not know about him and mm. I've read a lot about him and I, I, find him to be really fascinating and uh it is sort of funny because people always think of um civil civil liberties and social justice as a democratic issue as the the democrats Mm -hmm. but it kind of didn't start that way it was really the republicans who were a little bit more um on the like social justice alleviating poverty you know that was sort of their thing and the democrats were not (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wasn't John, surprised to hear that he was he was a Republican. Yeah, he's an old fashioned Republican. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, the, the the whole thing about Tony Lawrence is I I got to imagine they put in some effort to try and find Tony Lawrence that they would not kind of produce this without getting the guy who is res- basically responsible for it on the record. And so you know you're forced to admit um, perhaps either a they just couldn't find them, which is possible. Like if you, if you don't leave a trail, nobody can find you or, or B he's, you know, not with us anymore. And perhaps um, not wanting to uh, bring down the vibe, uh, perhaps not wanted to, or perhaps look to admitting that I, that would, I still think that would be an oversight without maybe like a bit at the end going, you know, Tony dedicated to Tony Lawrence or something, but I, you know, it just, you're right. It, it is a glaring omission. I don't think it's an omission um, that that was done as a slight. It's just you know, he's he's just Tony Lawrence is just one of those people who did this thing, and you know because it was almost literally buried for decades. It you know he just kind of nobody bothered to follow up with him ever. Yeah, <laughs> which is like I, I'm laughing, but it's it's incredibly sad. It's you know it. It, it would I mean, be... it could be the story of so many sure. black people, right? Well, I mean, it's notable. Like earlier this year, they had they marked the hundredth anniversary of the the Tulsa race massacre, and you know, nobody knows what happened to the two people who were most responsible, are not responsible for the events, but the two people whom uh, set off the course of events that started that massacre. Like they kind of disappeared into history too, so. It's it, it just seems to be like a, a startling trend that 
Um, although black people are part of these historical events, they are not necessarily part of them as well when you consider the historical context. Mm-hmm. Yes, they don't get to tell the story. That's no, that's right. the thing. Um, yeah, history, history is... I don't even want to say that history is written by the victor, which is what we usually say. History mm-hmm. is written by the white. Victor, like yeah. it, it just is right. <laughs> yeah. And so even when, even when we lose, we still tell the story, but we just tell it differently. Mm-hmm. Dick Rowland is who I'm thinking of. Um, it was the, the young black man accused in that uh, the whole Tulsa race uh massacre started up as yeah it, it just it, it's kind of a glaring omission i and sometimes these things happen too uh there's a documentary and if people are kind of looking for like granted the guelph film festival which is a documentary film festival is on right now but if you're looking to sort of program one of your own um this is a good uh documentary summer of soul to pair with if you have crave uh woodstock 99 which is all about mm-hmm. sort of deconstructing Woodstock. I mean, it is about the ninety, the nineteen ninety nine version, but it also deconstructs the sixties one, um, which has been, you know, the whole point of it is that the the nineteen sixty nine Woodstock was mythologized to a point where it ignores the fact that you know uh, there were problems at that festival. People were uh, killed. People were got sick. People got hurt. Uh, it was seat of their pants territory (laughs) yeah and interestingly um i looked up the lineup because i wanted to see Mm -hmm. um how many of these artists did both because uh, sly and the family stone um Mm -hmm. did uh play at the harlem cultural fest and they also played at um at woodstock and they were still pretty new then like they really became popular after the Mm -hmm. woodstock performance Mm -hmm. and and their inclusion on the soundtrack i think is part of what really pushed them up into into pop you know, pop stardom. But um, as I was looking at up the uh, Woodstock uh, lineup, <laughs> it's important to note, and this is, you know, one of those kudos to Tony Lawrence, um, the Harlem Cultural Festival was actually six events. Mm-hmm. It was six, six uh, Sundays in a row. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, presumably it all went fine. People, people showed up, people played, People went home. He had to like put everything together. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he had to tear the stage apart every week or if they had it, you know, they just sort of closed up. I don't know what they did, but Woodstock was so poorly organized. Mm-hmm. As I was looking up the lineup, and and I mean, I knew that Jimi Hendrix was the last person on stage mm-hmm. and that it was the middle of the day mm-hmm. and there weren't that many people there because people had already left, but I hadn't registered why so the concert started on friday jimi hendrix played on monday (laughs) because that's how long it took to get through everyone and the first as i was reading through the lineup the first time i noticed an anomaly was that the who who were supposed to be saturday night um not uh, like just the pre-headliner like they were supposed to be right before the headliner i don't remember who the headliner was but they were supposed to play right before the headliner and they played Sunday morning at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. So presumably most of Saturday, you know, they played some songs until, I don't know, maybe four or five dinner time or something. And then 
the concert just kind of stopped until well past midnight. And then they did a bunch, like they literally played all Saturday night. And then they took a break on Sunday and came back with Joe Cocker and then played all through Sunday night into Monday morning. Cause it was so poorly organized. Mm-hmm. The Harlem cultural festival, six, six separate events ran like clockwork. As far as I can tell, good for them. Yeah. But I mean, people like, you know, Michael Lang who, who organized quote unquote organized Woodstock are like kind of venerated as, you know, these idealists and mm-hmm. idea people who, you know, there's a whole kind of mythology built up around them that just, and you know, the Woodstock 99 documentary basically makes the point it's because there was this really expansive documentary about Woodstock that sort of painted everything as, um, as uh, culturally, I guess, relevant um, that it was kind of like this celestial, it wasn't just like a music, but it was a <laughs> celestial event. And yeah, it, it's, it, it was this like poorly run, blank show we can't use the actual yeah. word on. <laughs> well <laughs> and it just reminds me of the statement i have heard from a number of black people which is that mm-hmm. black people have to work twice three times five times ten times as hard mm-hmm. to achieve half of the the results half of the accolades mm-hmm. right they have to overachieve just to get the the where they are the crumbs that they get and it is <laughs> like these two concerts are are very they really show that <laughs> yeah and i think it's something of a minor miracle that someone had the foresight to record 40 hours of this thing mm-hmm. and it's something of a minor miracle that it like the footage looks great i don't know what kind of restoration work they might have done on it but you know looking at like old pictures from 69 of the events um, that have kind of degraded uh, or look that they like, they've, like not, you know, that picture old pictures, you know, for, for people who remember when pictures were on film, um, <laughs> they, uh, they don't hold up as well, but the video, I say video, but I, the film, whatever it is, they took it on. It looks great. And um Well, and interestingly, because it was recorded for television, too, which is also a lower quality. But I did read. um, So it wasn't uh, it wasn't like miraculously last year or something that this footage was found. It was sort of um, brought forward in 2004 Mm -hmm. and um, it was digitized then. So that's, you know, almost another 20 years of it not (laughs) degrading because they had the digitized um, uh, archive of it at that point but mm-hmm. still um yeah yeah the like it it was it was recorded for television apparently some of it did air on television but mm. you know obviously nothing other than those couple of live <laughs> well, events just, happened i'm sure it did like i'm sure it made like the local news like Oh, and there was another afternoon at the Harlem Cultural Festival, and this week Stevie Wonder, young Stevie Wonder, <laughs> yes. nineteen-year-old Stevie Wonder. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? Let's let's get into the content because yeah, yeah. Uh, we've said a lot, and I think uh, it's important to really talk about like the the culture, like the, you know the the social aspects of this. Yeah. But I think you know even more importantly, and and I stand by this a lot. We can't only 
we can't only look at um, uh, people of different races through the lens of their trauma. And we mm. have to celebrate the joy and holy, wow. Oh my God. <laughs> like these, these artists, some of whom I've actually never even heard of, but obviously ones like Stevie Wonder and David Ruffin of The Temptations and Gladys Knight in the Pips and Mavis Staples. And I'm just like, oh, and then I mean, not that I want to spoil the ending, but oh my God, Nina Simone. Mm -hmm. And the way it was all laid out, because I've I've looked at some of the lineup and and um the the film doesn't really follow the lineup the way it happened. It mm -hmm. really sort of pushes and pulls and and takes from things. But it's it I, I just I don't know how Questlove knew exactly. Um what I needed and wanted and in what order, <laughs> but he really managed to just like make the order exactly right mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it started opens with Stevie wonder, which mm -hmm. was great. And yeah. then a little bit of BB King. And then it goes right into this like gospel thing yeah, into like the R and B. And I think I've mentioned in the past how I feel about nineties R and B, <laughs> which is <laughs> that it, feels like it's satirizing R&B it's so but you know in the 60s that that gospel soul R&B sound is just it's so good and it's so powerful and I think that there's there would have been a um like a uh a, 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 it would have been very easy for someone else to have put that at the end mm -hmm. but instead it was put at the beginning and then switched into pop and then the funk and then you get the like Afro-Cuban beats. And just when I was thinking, boy, there was precious little Stevie Wonder in this. I'm so disappointed. Suddenly there was Stevie Wonder again doing more songs. I'm like, how? How did Questlove know that I was just thinking I wanted to hear more Stevie Wonder? And then he gave it to me. Well, he's a DJ. So I'm, I, I, I think that's um, kind of his gift as for for making a film like this is that he can program the music and program the performances like a dj would perform tracks or would organize tracks um it amazed me how much of this was dedicated to the gospel like the the kind of um because the various weeks were separated into different programmings and uh one week it was kind of uh, kind of the gospel week and that's where you get this uh mahalia jackson and and mavis staples segment and you know it is an, an exploration of the, during the segment it's also the exploration of kind of like the origins of gospel and its its significance to the black experience but you know also just it's it's such a great performance and it, it kind of just like pulls you in it, it there's it's so magnetic um even if you kind of have no truck for for gospel music the the, the power of the performance you just can't ignore and it comes like sort of in this midsection of the film it's a two-hour film too um not to say that it's a slog or anything but it, you know I, I as as a regular sort of recurring theme uh on this show i i i always say 90 minutes is kind of the sweet spot but it um this is kind of one of those occasions where you don't feel the time passing and you know like a like a good dj quest love knows how would like when to sort of pull you in and when to let you like float away and then pull you back in again and and you, you, there is that beat 
to to how the film is edited and the film really is about the performances yeah there's like talking head segments you get some interesting um insights from like the, I, I like the portion with the fifth dimension when they're talking about like how they had trouble fitting in because people didn't know they were uh they didn't sound like quote-unquote black performers and they talked about how um they they got the rights to perform aquarius and and that was a funny story um but it you know quest love knows the gold is in the performances and is in the actual like the show footage i'd be very interested to see like what the what the ratio is in the film between like just like the the performance footage and like the the talking head kind of stuff because i think it's probably about 50 50 if not like 60 40 um Mm -hmm. so you know just yeah i i think we uh i definitely wouldn't have um been unhappy if there was one more hour of this film (laughs) and it it was more performance Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah like bb king for instance we didn't really get very much bb king no maybe not necessarily that we needed it but it is really interesting to you know, another thing that's that's really um, was really uh, important to note was you could really see times changing and people changing. And, you know, looking into the audience, it wasn't just one group of people like you look at Woodstock. Everybody there was a hippie. Yeah. Like, period. <laughs> that, that is the end of the story. And while the music, you know, was a little bit different, there was kind of rock and a little bit of folk and whatever. And then Shanana, whatever you want to call that, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> uh, which was throwback, but it was new. But that's besides the point. This was really like a lot of different styles of music, a lot of different ages in the audience, people who were, you know, dressed in their Sunday best people who were embracing that like um like afro almost afrofuturism you know that afro culture with mm. their their dress and their hair and then people who were just like you know just teenagers doing whatever like it was really across the board and it i mean granted of course we're picking and choosing footage and when the camera is panning the audience you know mm-hmm. they're not going to narrow in on the people who look like they're having a bad time but <laughs> It certainly looked like it didn't really matter what type of person you were or what you were what you were there for. Whatever mm-hmm. was going up on stage was incredible. I mean, we had the one guy from the audience who was talking about how him and his friends were all there, and they were they were into those like the singing men's groups, right? The Temptations, mm-hmm. or everybody mm-hmm. had their suit and tie on. They're singing in in harmony, practically like barbershop harmony, only better. (laughs) Like that's, you know, synchronized dancing. That was their thing. And they all showed up there. And then Sly and the Family Stone, which was very different from that style. It was like, it was rock, really. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'd say almost the only rock on this, um, you know, whole six week thing. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But yet it was just like, whoa, okay, I'm I'm here for this. Like, that's what I came for and I loved it. But whoa, I'm so ready to be introduced to this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there's a, a stark difference. This really did feel like a community festival. Woodstock was kind of sold as like a community festival. But, it, you know, again, a lot of what has been built around Woodstock in the last 50 years has has a, has a bit of 
let's say mistruth to it or mis. Well, and it was never intended to be a free festival. It ended up becoming one for three quarters of the audience, but there were a number of them who actually (laughs) paid paid to show up. Um, (laughs) Whereas this, this was free every weekend. Mm-hmm. No gate, no entry, no nothing. It's just in the park. Yeah, if you can, and I loved all the scenes of like people like standing in the trees. Just, <laughs> I, I, yeah. that, that sort of tickled me too. It, it just, yeah, everything that Woodstock tried to do, it seemed like this did better. And um, it just the, the the movie doesn't dwell. I mean, we kind of dwelled a lot on that in the interview, but it, you know the 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 music itself is is so good, and like the Stevie Wonder. You know, the thing that kind of mesmerized me about that is like, I don't remember, like, granted, I've never seen every bit of Stevie Wonder concert footage, but I just don't remember seeing him like that active, like as a performer, like he like he moves from the piano at one point to the drums and he's like doing this elaborate sort of drum work. And it's like Mm -hmm. Stevie Wonder plays the drums. (laughs) Yes, I was so excited. I was like, oh, I hardly ever get to see Stevie play the drums. And it was mesmerizing what I love because I rewatched it this morning uh, again, (laughs) because you'll note often when I'm rewatching something, it's because there's music involved. I watched In the Heights twice before. we. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I rewatched I rewatched it this morning and I was just like watching Stevie on the drums again. And that's when I started to realize how well the, the music was edited into the story as well mm-hmm. because that was really sort of in in the beginning and he was using stevie's drum solo to really like show the escalation of uh where america and race issues were at that time mm-hmm. and and just kept like you know as the drum solo was building the the news is building till till it gets to you know the the race riots that were happening like just like the summer before you know just across the river in new jersey and it never actually happened in new york but Mm -hmm. and so something like that and then they did a very similar thing too with the uh, jesse jackson part Mm -hmm. um which is it it can be challenging to watch because it does not pull any punches Mm -hmm. about um the assassination of martin luther king jr but it was just it's timed perfectly so they switch they switch from the concert footage to jesse jackson now as an adult sort of telling the story and there's this part where you know the adult now jesse jackson says pop yeah to to indicate that the gun has fired and it's just it's ex- like it's just timed so perfectly with the concert footage happening. The music in the background is just ex- like it was so well done. Mm. I was like, wow, the the editing, like so much attention was paid mm-hmm. to s- such small things. Mm-hmm. So, Candace, if uh, people want to. Uh... I don't know, talk music documentaries. Uh, yeah, or send me content made by, uh, you know, yeah, creators yeah. who are Black or Indigenous or people of color. Mm-hmm. And by content, I mean mostly like movies, because believe me, I listen to a ton of podcasts that are hosted by by Black people and Indigenous people in Canada, which is great. But I need movies to watch. Mm-hmm. Don't we so, all? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry. And if you want to do that, I guess I should tell you how to reach me, right? Yes. <laughs> Sin48, that's C-I-N-N-4-8 on every single social media you can find. Every single one of them. And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. And if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on our website at endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Politicast channel every Friday at Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, you can find the playlist for much of the music that you hear on the End Credits show. Just open up Spotify and search for End Credits on CFRU. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show and on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back here tomorrow at 5 p.m. for News and Politics on Open Sources Guelph, and that is with Scotty Hertz. And in the meantime, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can check out my News and Politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for another brand spanking new edition of End Credits, and we will see you then. (laughs) 